0: No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. (laughs) Well, you should tell it. No, you tell it.
1: Hello, and welcome to No, You Tell It, a hybrid story incubator slash performance series. Each No, You Tell It participant develops their own nonfiction piece on the page, then switches with a partner to perform each other's work on stage. Because nothing informs your story like hearing someone else perform your story. The stress of planning and executing a family vacation to Las Vegas leaves the narrator of Vaughn M. Watson's story with a need to escape, resulting in a low key cannabis caper. Here is Marianthe Carrancis reading Getting Crafty at the Dispensary.
0: I know from hearing you read your own work that you've done a lot of traveling, Mm -hmm. but my question for you is if you could create a perfect itinerary for a day in Queens,
2: what (laughs) would that be? You know, I have a lot of out-of-town visitors, so I like to just take the 7 train and just eat everything on every stop. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so you just grab, hop on the 7, you and start then... start in
2: Flushing, and you go to Jackson Heights, and you go to Sunnyside, and you go to Island nice. City. Do you have any food shout-outs, particular types? Cause you <laughs> say everything. Food shout-outs. My favorite restaurant in Queens is La which is a momo place in Jackson Heights. Really good momo, <laughs> really good food, really, really good food. <laughs> Delicious.
0: Great. Great. For the first story tonight, we're going to hear Getting Crafty at the Dispensary, written by Vaughn M. Watson. So now you can sit down. And read by Anthony Francis. <laughs>
3: Getting Crafty at the Dispensary. Around Christmas time, your grandmother starts to worry. Though her husband's decline and eventual death took place some 20 years ago, she still contemplates it around the time when she changes the sienna and gold placemats for the red and green ones. Over the years, the places she sets at the table have become fewer and fewer. So to shake things up, you offer her the chance to go to Rome, New Orleans, and Las Vegas, though you know full well which locale she'll pick. You then take on sole responsibility for planning this trip to Vegas, your last <laughs> choice of places, having already been there with her around your 21st birthday. Somehow, you managed to convince your hermit of an aunt to bring her family along. And even though Vegas isn't exactly family-friendly, you managed to set up an itinerary of sorts, a fancy Christmas dinner, a Motown review, even a goddamn gospel brunch. You've even managed to schedule some time in for yourself. Then the airport happens. Your aunt and her entire family are late, dragging a multitude of rolling suitcases behind them. Your cousin has somehow managed to stuff an entire PlayStation 4 into his backpack. (laughs) You have to put grandma into one of those obnoxious airport trucks to get to the gate on time. And just when you think you can relax... Your grandma and your aunt are nowhere to be found when the line to board the plane finally starts moving. So when you arrive at the MGM Grand via airport shuttle and see a billboard advertising marijuana dispensaries along the way, (laughs) you quietly make it your mission to infiltrate one. Your first day in Vegas is the only one selfish in its nature. On the first morning around 8 a.m., a pink Hummer picks you up and drives you and your little cousins into Red Rock Canyon for a moment of escape. The strip gives way to desert, gives way to prehistoric rock formations. Brave men climb in the shadows of rock faces, and locals walk their sturdy dogs up the steep paths. Your little cousins put down their phones and stare and walk. They use a latrine for the first time. Mm-hmm. The visitor center is closed due to the government shutdown, mm-hmm. and you have more time... To pretend to hike Aside from getting in touch With nature at Red Rock You also have a friend to see in Vegas You've known him ever since He overstayed his visa In hopes of getting gay asylum Last time you saw him He was still living in New York And you were dre- you were downing cheap vodka sodas Off 2nd Avenue He told you who he was moving to Vegas And invited you to his green card book. You thought he was kidding But you understood that he'd do anything to not have to go back to China again. He offers to take you to Hamburger Mary's while your grandma searches for the perfect dollar slot and your cousins make their third unsupervised Uber trip to In-N-Out. Your friend (laughs) and his husband pick you up in front of the hotel and drive you to Hamburger Mary's. You size up his husband. You can't decide if he's trailer trash or some kind of off-brand Nevada hipster. His husband is talking a lot, and he seems nice enough, which brings some comfort. You end up not too far off a strip on a street that looks like America. You each have a glass of red wine. His husband asks if you want to tra- try their namesake burgers. But the impossibly bland Emerald Lagasse seafood dinner you shared with your family earlier suppresses your appetite. The show begins... And men in hot pants dance around the drag queens to Christmas music. A group of straight girls celebrating a birthday are losing their minds over the show. Yeah. Their messiness, considering it's just 8 p.m., is more entertaining than the lip syncing and the bold backup dancers working to "I Saw Daddy." Santa Claus. <laughs> your friend is quiet as usual, so you're trying your best to make conversation with his husband. He asks you what you think about various guys at the bar, which leads him to complaining about his sex life, or lack thereof, which is incredibly awkward. You change the topic back to guys at the bar until your jet lag hits you and you put up, pick up the check. As his husband drives you back to the emerald steps that make up one face of the MGM Grand, he points out a dispensary attached to a strip mall, and you decide to ask if he doesn't mind stopping. He doesn't, of course. You get disappointed by the lack of craftiness required, by the ease with which you can get a teacher discount on your chocolate chip cookie and pineapple gummies, even with an out-of-state ID. Still, you are pleased with your spoils. Still, you're worried about your friend's future. You inspect a dozen or so gummies. They are spherical and blue, then coated in what you can only assume are THC sour crystals. You tip the happy couple with a couple of your, in retrospect, very expensive gummies. As you hug your friend a final time and wave goodbye, cars and bellboys appear beside you. The car drives off once you enter the automatic doors. You predict your friend's husband will eat the gummies and that he will absolutely not share. (laughs) On the fourth day, Grandma loses track of time at the machines and almost doesn't make it to the Motown review she's been looking forward to for weeks. One of your cousins has a meltdown because he won't be able to drive an exotic car at the speedway. You're pissed at your aunt for relying on you to make even the least significant decisions. The stress of handling an entire family vacation by yourself is finally getting to you. You decide to take the night off and let some of the other adults handle things for once. After getting back from the mall with your cousin, you pop a gummy. And use the quill you're taking to suppress your cold to mask any high behavior. <laughs> For the first time in your decade-long history with me, your eyes turn bright red <laughs> as they react with the Cedar among several other active ingredients. You lay in bed supine near comatose, <laughs> watching the great interior design challenge. Upon remembering you have a body, You realize the gummies are too strong to finish on this trip. This leaves you with a financial, ethical, and legal dilemma. Netflix prompts you to delete the current episode and play the next one. Those gummies were expensive, and goddammit, you're going to get every cent of enjoyment out of them. So you conduct some research. Google tells you the best way to transport edibles, the easiest forms of illegal goods to transport besides guns it also scares the shit out of you with reddit horror stories in the GED history class we teach you always use the transportation of marijuana as an example of federalism the continuous misunderstanding between state and federal governments that is unique to the United States you could use that as an example of irony in your English class (laughs) at a CVS not too far from a Hooters hotel you buy an extra large pack of resealable gummy bears a smaller pouch of thin Oreos for your chocolate chip cookie, and lots of water so Grandma doesn't take a $15 bottle from the bar again. (laughs) On the final night, Christmas Day, you stand in line 45 minutes for a buffet because nobody wants the fancy French dinner you planned. (laughs) Devastated, you make sure to take full advantage of the meaty crab legs and bottomless champagne. Afterwards, alone in your room, You repack your bags, saving the contraband for last because of how it makes your heart flutter. You nibble on a few of the gummy bears, then dump the edibles in, careful to distribute them evenly. You eat a thin Oreo and contemplate their existence, then break the cookie in half, a pothead communion, and drop it in. D-Day. Grandma struggles to get her new dresses a second Christmas gift into her bag. Your aunt waits until the last minute to check out and walks up smiling just as the airport shuttle arrives. It rained the day before, which is extremely rare, but the Nevada winter sun has already dried up any evidence of precipitation. Check-in goes smoothly, though you had to pay for Grandma's overweight bag. Six years ago, at a baggage claim in Southwest China, your friend reached into the inception pocket of his jeans and pulled out the unfinished baggie of weed you had procured in its high alleyway. Mm-hmm. He told you, you just have to forget about it. <laughs> As bags go through inspection. Mm-hmm. Shoes are hastily removed. You've just gone through the millimeter wave unit when you notice that your bag isn't among your other items. They call you over. You ask if there's a problem. Your mouth goes dry, and you're not sure whether you've said anything or made a pterodactyl like noise. You imagine a near future in which your entire family sees you jailed at McCarran fucking International Airport <laughs> for what is no doubt the stupidest of all federal offenses. You make a marked like, attempt at a smile as the two agents root through your dirty clothes, mostly t shirts and underwear, until they pull out a bag of Haribo gummy bears. Mm. You're very close to shitting your pants <laughs> The TSA agent says, Ah, here's the culprit. And you're ready to put your wrists out for arrest. But then the agent tucks the bag back into the suitcase where he found them and then struggles to closing, having rearranged all your clothes in the most inefficient way possible. You can feel your face again as you help one agent press the suitcase down as the other zips it closed. While waiting for the next monorail to the airport gates, you tell everyone that your bag was searched, but not about the guns. Your uncle, his bald head shining like obsidian in the direct light of the sun, says he was stopped too. The culprit in his carry-on was a, an opened bottle of peanuts. The TSA agent, taking her job, very seriously, thoroughly examined its contents. And for a second, your heart stops just at the thought that this could have happened to you. But that anxiety fades when the monorail arrives. You get celebratory del Taco. <laughs> Grandma gets in her last gambling for a while at the very depressing airport slot machines. <laughs> Everybody heads to the gate. You open your suitcase and transfer the Gummy Bears to your tote bag along with a Nintendo Switch and an untouched issue of Poets and Writers. <laughs> At cruising altitude, with a seat in between you and soundly sleeping Grandma, who apparently was not impressed by Mamma Mia, here we go again, <laughs> the desert rolls beneath you. Two and a half movies later, the plane is descending into city lights. You reach into the bag and pop a gummy. Now one of your greatest and most illegal accomplishments into your mouth as you anticipate the meeting of the plane's wheels with the ground gradually reappearing beneath you.
1: Switching it up. The familiar rhythms of vacation life on the coast of the Ionian Sea lull the protagonist of our next story into a sense of security until the clues that something may be amiss become too hard to ignore. Here's Vaughn M. Watson reading Her Own Personal Ithaca by Marianthe Carrancis.
0: But I didn't realize until the first story meeting that this is the first time that you've shared your creative work on Moss, like first with us in the story meeting and now tonight.
3: When you first approached me, I was... Very nervous. I've written professionally. I've written articles for education blogs. I'm a teacher. Um, but I've never put my creative work out there. Mm. Just out of fear or whatnot. Yes.
0: So, so my question within that is, yes. as you mentioned the first meeting, that you and your daughter are having like a, a texting session yes. where she was kind of bolstering you up to get you yes. to that first meeting. Yes. I was wondering if you could give us a little peek on what well, was um, that dynamic. Uh, my
3: daughter is... Um, a very empathetic 16-year-old. I know, I know. <laughs> Doesn't happen often. Um, and she always really gives me a lot of courage to be strong and to face my fears. And again, one of my fears was always bringing out my creative work for the world to see. So when I told her that you had messaged me, she stormed into my office. She said, you're doing it or else I'm not going to school or else I'm not going to so I'm like, you know, chemistry trumps my fear, so, <laughs> and here I am. Wonderful, we're yes. so happy. Thank and you so
0: much. I'm, we're excited to hear Vaughn is going to read her own personal Ithaca, written by Anthe. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you.
2: Her own personal Ithaca. 5 a.m. She stumbled out of the bedroom late at night. It might have been closer to early morning, and she could hear the first roosters crowing in anticipation of the day ahead. She felt the steady thumb thump of her dog's tail against her leg. Layla, her trusted Chihuahua companion, had jumped up the bed to follow her outside. Always by her side, ever since she had finished her cancer treatments, she would not go anywhere without the animal companion. Layla also didn't go anywhere without her and she looked up at her owner all puppy-eyed to see what her next move would be. She didn't think to look look to her right, as a stalwart would either be there or not. Summers on the island of Ithaca afforded them both the luxury of using their time as they saw fit, without the constraints of having to go to work or attending to the myriad of responsibilities that filled their days back in the United States. Night or day, spending time on her terrace in Greece was an activity she relished during the summer months, when the family made its way to their homeland. She made her way to the kitchen, grabbed a cigarette and lighter, and went outside with Layla to smoke and watch the sun come up over the mountains. Across the street from the old stone home was an equally old stone structure that served as the mountaintop's gathering place, convenience shop, and gossip corral. While not as grand in stature as the home, the people in the sleepy Greek fishing village had relied on the shop for over a century procuring the necessities when the larger supermarket to the south of the island was too far to get to. Entering the shop, you were transported back to the future as neatly stacked cans of tomato paste, bags of lentils, canned sardines, and clear plastic boxes of Turkish delights lined the perimeter of the walls. Their likeness mirrored off of the brand new espresso machine recently bought to serve the ever-growing influx of tourists that visited the quaint village. A true mix of old and new that fascinated expats and tourists alike. Small round tables, hardly big enough to hold a cup of Greek coffee and a glass of water, were surrounded by blue painted wooden chairs filled with people chatting about their day. Had the nets been heavy with fish in the morning? Were the vineyards going to withstand the heat wave? Did the olive trees look heavy with fruit that would promise barrels of shimmering oil in the fall? her attention turned back to the shop that was usually locked up for the night. She could tell there was a faint light coming from inside, and the quiet that filled the mountaintop this late at night was interrupted by voices from within. She wondered if everything was okay with the family that had run the shop for close to a hundred years. A family close to her own, distantly related, as most of the families in the sleepy fishing village were. Kostas, a man of about 70, had passed away from a lung illness the year prior and his wife and children had taken over the shop making it flourish with purposeful renovations that had not diminished its feel as an aging land- landmark there was now a light-hearted air that had drawn in more tourists than ever before walking into the little shop on the mountaintop was like walking back in time it was always a pleasure to venture across the street and drink a cup of coffee in the old shop, listening to tales from the old folk that had survived massive earthquakes, dictatorships, mass integrations of its young men, and the always reliable gossip from around the village. She drew deeply on her cigarette as the first hint of sun colored the sky a majestic hue of orange and took care to put out the half smoked butt in the ashtray. It was much too early to get up. What was the purpose of summer vacation if not to sleep in? Or not? If one so wished, she walked back to the bedroom, the light starting to peer through the wooden shutters and noticed that the stalwart wasn't in bed. The island was made for pre-dawn walks along the many centuries old paths. And often either spouse would sneak out in the wee hours to explore the unspoiled island. Layla seemed unperturbed, (laughs) jumped up on the mattress and conveniently laid down on stalwart's pillow. She walked towards her bed, lay down and shut her eyes. 11 a.m. She woke up, and there was stalwart in his usual supine position, nostrils flaring with the efforts of the long breath of deep sleep. She couldn't count how many times she had pinched those nostrils shut just to witness him flail in his sleep. (laughs) After 24 years of togetherness, she still couldn't help but hate that relentless snoring of his. She She plodded along to the kitchen to make her coffee and headed out to the terrace. The old stone home had stood when others had fallen. Her great-great-grandfather had taken such care to build a formidable home that would withstand the harsh natural elements of the region. Earthquakes, some so big they had toppled nearly every structure on the island, were no match for the great home. Growing up, it had always been her dream to bring the house back to its old glory. And now, at 44, her dream had been realized. Stalwart seemed to love the home as much as she did, although his only attachment to it was through her. Nonetheless, they had agreed that renovating would only increase the value of the home, and they wanted to make sure it stood for their children and their children's children. She loved how the house smelled after being locked up for the winter, musty and damp, the woodwork raptors screaming for winds to dry them out in the summer. <coughs> she walked through each room and could smell her ancestors' lives, embedded in the grout lining each perfectly placed stone in the walls. The grout that had held together the walls, that had held together her family. 2 a.m. The day slipped into night with all the usual activities done. Beach, lunch, walk down the mountainside to the bay, have a drink with the locals, walk back up the mountainside to the old stone home, smoke a cigarette, go to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) The usual routine that filled their summer days, full of leisure. She absentmindedly locked the doors, something not really necessary in the crime-free village and laid down next to the stalwart to sleep. Layla curled up by her legs under the crisp sheet, and she sank into a content slumber. Sometime during the night, she felt the stalwart stirring. Not thinking anything of it, she turned over on her side and slipped even deeper into her sleep. So deep, she felt herself falling off the cliff and jumped up before she hit the bottom. She rubbed her groggy eyes, heart still pounding, and looked towards the left side of the bed. Stalwart was not there. Again, she walked into the kitchen, noticing the bathroom door open, not there either. She grabbed a cigarette, lit it, inhaling as much of the smoke as possible. Outside, the darkness had enveloped the view out on the Ionian Sea, pitch black everywhere. She walked out onto the terrace and noticed, yet again, a small light and quiet voices coming from the shop across the street. The wooden door was closed, though, indicating the shop was closed. Yet the voices, subtle, and almost barely above a murmur. She sat inconspicuously on the terrace, putting out the cigarette to ensure its light not be seen. She heard the door to the shop open and saw Kostas's daughter walk out, alone. She walked back towards her bed, lay down, and shut her eyes. Ten a.m. She rose from the bed, Layla at her heels. Stalwart was still asleep. Outside, the village had come alive hours before, The locals getting up daily to tend to their vineyards and other agricultural obligations needed to support their livelihoods. She thought to herself where Stalwart had been the past nights. He had gone fishing, which was evident from the lack of fish needing to be cleaned. She had a feeling something was amiss but shook the thought from her head, admitting that their summers on the island were always full of Stalwart rebirthing his Greek roots, having moved to the U.S. in 1999 and never truly embracing the American lifestyle. Even though he had loved America, he even though he had never loved America, he loved his family, and he had always been a rock by her side. About the day the family went, dog in tow, and ended their night on the terrace with a glass of uso, overlooking the blackness of the night that was laid out before them, inhaling deeply on their cigarettes. With the exception of some twinkling lights indicating another sleepy fishing village across the sea, all that could be seen was nothing, a void. No horizon with which to determine where the world ends and where the heavens meet. This part of the world dimmed into complete blackness as she slept. As the sun slept. 4 a.m. She woke with a start, her heart fluttering. Attempting to return her breathing to normal, she reached out and started petting Layla's head, an automatic response every time she felt anxiety building up in her chest. She hadn't woken with a feeling of panic in a long time and decided she should not fight it, but get up and walk it off, before a full-blown attack came on. She turned to her left, eyes transfixed on the blue haze seeping through the wooden slats of the shutters. It was the third night in a row that Stalwart was not in bed. She hurried out of bed. Layla looked up, then rested her head back down. She walked through the dark house slowly, walking out to the terrace, peering over across the street, trying hard to be as inconspicuous as possible. Again, a faint light and voices. She hurried into a t-shirt and shorts and stepped out barefoot to ensure no noise from her flip-flops. She walked down the steep stone stairs on the side of the house and looked across the street. The doors to the store were closed, but a dim light could be seen coming through the old wooden door slats. She tiptoed and got to the side of the old stone shop and pressed her ear to the shuttered window. She could hear two voices, Stalwart and Kosos' daughter. Frozen for a moment... She also heard another noise from inside the shop, an indicator that they weren't just whispering. She slowly turned around, tiptoed across the narrow street, climbed the stone stairs. As she entered the house, there was Layla waiting for her at the door. They went out on the terrace where she lit a cigarette, the realization of what she just saw, hitting her as if every stone used to build the house, was now being hurled at her. She had to think, but for now, she walked towards her bed, lay down and shut her eyes. 10 p.m. They sat outside on the terrace. She brought out the remaining Uzo and sat with him at the table. Stalwart sat there, drawing on his cigarette, looking out into the dark. She filled her glass, turned to him, and told him to leave. Stalwart acted confused, but after being together for 24 years, he had learned to read her eyes. He knew she knew. He got up, gathered his things, and left. Layla sat at her feet, hoping for a bite of cheese from the table. She lit a cigarette, looking out one last time on the dark in front of her. It enveloped her as she drew hard on the cigarette that would be her last at the house at that time on the terrace. And she walked towards her bed, lay down, and shut her eyes.
0: That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of Know You Tell It.
2: Visit
1: us on the web at KnowYouTellIt.com.